The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you live from the Upright Digital Studios in Houston, Texas. I am joined, as usual, with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. Josh, hello. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm recovering from a beast of a Easter weekend, so... We went to Tennessee. Yeah. It rained nonstop. It rained so nonstop. For a four-year-old, almost four-year-old, and rain and unfamiliar surroundings. Indoors. Yeah, it was, It was. but it was a fabulous time. Easter Sunday was great. How about you, man? Well, um, it. I did a lot of the same stuff, kids and all that, but I tried to watch as much Masters golf as possible. Mm. Did you, I assume you watched quite a bit of it? I, I was on the plane on the way home watching... John Rahm just demolished everyone. It was a great Masters. Yeah. It was great. My uh, wife's aunt is, I, I love her. She's a nice lady. She came over and she tried to put the Astros game on in the middle of the Masters. And I right. I almost lost it. I was like, what do you think that is happening? That doesn't sound here? like a nice lady, Josh. It, she's, not, she's nice until that happened. And I, and I just <laughs> thought to myself, like, what do you think is going on today? Do you think we're watching game three of a 162-game baseball season or yeah. we're watching the Masters? And she's like, we can just flip back and forth. I said, Diane, we are not flipping back and forth. Uh, were you going for John Rahm or anybody in particular? I Just general? I just like to watch the tournament. It was awesome. It's great. I actually got to go this year. That's kind of my, oh, my humble fun. brag. I'm not even humble with that. I, I'm so excited. Practice rounds, the real thing? I went on Monday this year. Uh, I've never been that early in the week, which is pretty cool. The crowds are a little bit smaller, but the best part about it is the swag is awesome. There's Everything is still there. Yep. And it is, you can buy things that aren't there on the weekend round. Mm-hmm. So I basically either do my shopping at Costco or the Masters. Yeah. There's no in between. You cannot walk out of that place without spending a grand. And then... <laughs> I mean, first of all, I have no idea what I spent because you can't ever, I don't even look at the, I mean, not that I'm that kind of money, but I just, if you look, then you have to admit how much you spent to your wife. And I'm not going to do that. So I don't know how much I spent, but. I've got some great stuff. I'm wearing it. By the way, great plug. Dan, I like what you did there. You should look at us on YouTube and you can see, you know, the fashion of the podcast, which is Master's Vest today. Mm. Yes. Well done. Yeah, you like that? Well done. I think one of our guests actually went to the Masters this year. Am I right on this? I I did. I was lucky enough to go. Yeah, I was there for Saturday and Sunday this year. See, look how good we're getting oh, at fun. this podcast. Okay. So I was there so for biblical rain and then a beautiful yeah. day. It yes, was... <laughs> there we go. Well, before we ask you about that, we got to introduce you. So Matt Bavin, Lila Ontiveros of, of Palantir. And so 
we have got a fun one in store today because we're going to be the guys who break to the world what Palantir does. Yes. Which is, I, I know consistently you get the questions like, what the hell does Palantir do? We're going to get there. But the most important question of the day, Matt, where did you set up your chair at the yeah. Masters for Sunday? Yeah, so Sunday the chair goes uh, second green. So North Gate, straight down to two green as fast as you can get there. That's a great spot. Although we spent most of our time uh, up on the ninth green. Because going off of one and ten sort of changed the day yeah. a little bit. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, and with where the pin was at nine, we had a great spot. Watched the approach on nine. Watched the really, really tricky putt um, and saw sort of everyone come through nine. You could flip over and catch the early groups or the back groups How coming fun. through 18. Then went down to 16, then over to 17. Ah, 16's a good hole. R- real quick, were you there Saturday as well? Yeah. Were you there when the tree fell on 17? Uh, no, so, that was Friday. Oh, that happened yeah. Friday. Okay. I yeah. By Saturday, Saturday, you you couldn't tell that there had even been a tree there. That's it, crazy. There was new sod, and it was like those trees were never there. That's awesome. Oh, awesome. that's cool. Yeah. Lila, what cool story do you have? I mean, I did get <laughs> our our CFO got invited to the Masters and couldn't go, and I'm an avid golfer, so he sends me the email, and I was like, "You have to go." Yeah. Like I, he's like, "Well, we have so much to do, earnings." Well, I'm like, "I'll I'll do it for you." Yes. What could go wrong? Um, he said, well, do you want to go in my place? Of course. The answer is obviously yes. But uh, the host didn't find that uh, the that was a non-transferable. The invitation didn't quite make it to Lila. So that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> well, that's, I think you were right trying to talk him into it. That's You got to go. If you get invited, you have to go to it. 100%. Yes, I so. agree with that. Yeah, that was a, that's a rookie, a rookie move by your CFO. To, to, to say he couldn't go. It's an invitation um, unlike any other. There we go. <laughs> uh, well, so before we jump into Palantir and what you guys do, tell us a little bit about you. So Matt, go first since you're directly across from me. Um, tell us about you. How, how'd you wind up here? Where are you from? The usual. Sure. Yeah. Um, so born in Denver, Colorado. Uh, moved around a bunch until third grade. And then spent the rest of my time until college in Colorado. Uh, went out to California for university, uh, school and grad school there. Stanford, Oof. if I remember your resume, right? Yep, that's right. Yep. Um, in grad school, had an amazing professor, um, Chip Blacker, Coit Blacker, um, who was part of the uh, national security team on the Soviet Union and then Russia, Ooh. who conveniently sort of like routed me to a professor who was on sabbatical from the CIA at the time, mm. uh, who convinced me to go into that line of work. So that brought me out to DC, um, in 2005, uh, worked on Iraq there, um, for the CIA. Yep. So you were literally an ex CIA agent. Still am. Yeah. So once, once you're that, you're that forever. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, were you here when they were calling it the agency? I wasn't, but it sounds pretty cool when they say that. Yeah, by the way. yeah, it's a good distinction. I mean, in D.C., there's sort of like two classes of people that refer to, "Oh, I worked at the agency," and both of them are referring to two different buildings, and and neither will agree on on which one is actually the agency. So I like that even more. Yeah, um, and that that professor was was fantastic because um, the the one on sabbatical, he was like, "Well, what do you want to do with your life?" And this is when I was in grad school at the time, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Well, I think I want to get my PhD in economics," which is what I had studied in undergrad. He's like, oh, why do you want to do that? I was like, well, I really like doing research. I like like in-depth thinking. Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do after that? Oh, I think I'll go into teaching. I like that too. He's like, oh, it sounds like an awesome idea. 
if you want to write papers that people read when you're dead. <laughs> and I, I kind of like stopped. And at the time, I didn't know that he was from the agency. I was like, well, what's your counter offering? And he's like, well, why don't you do the research, do all that, spend time overseas, but write papers the president would read the next day. Well, that sounds that sounds more interesting. I didn't know that was a job. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, yeah, I'll introduce you to some friends. So that that got me to D.C. Um, split my time between D.C. and, and uh, Iraq until... I got pulled to Palantir, which is where I've been for 14 years. When uh, was when wow. was your tenure in Iraq? What uh, I was there a bit in 06, 07, and 08. Okay, uh, and it was Very in different places, and it was a little bit different every every time. Okay, um, I'm a reasonably crappy golfer now. I was a serious golfer in high school, but kind of lost time for mm-hmm. that. Um, the the other Masters connection I have is that my last round of I'd say really serious golf was Colorado State Championships, where I got paired with the younger Stadler. Oh. who, if you want to be really intimidated as a high schooler, you play with, you know. For the record, I just dress like a golfer. <laughs> yeah. Just so we're well, clear. Well, but there's, there's one very good golfer in this okay. in this room of four. Maybe yes. there are two, but there is at least one. Perfect. Um, Great. Lila. Yes. So we've N- established yeah. that you're Look a good at this. golfer. This is a transition. This <laughs> is a podcast. It's like you guys have done this before. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in the Houston area. I grew up in Kingwood. Um, my mom was actually the one who made me play golf. Okay. And my teenage rebellion was wanting to play ice hockey and go to the Olympics. And so that took me to boarding school. I obviously was the first one cut every time I tried to make the national team because you see how, how my size and I'm from Houston. Um, but that put me on a different path. I have a very non-linear Palantir type path. So uh, Exeter for boarding school, which my father was in the army for 20 years. My mom's a school teacher. So this was, you know, I did not grow up a coastal elite by any means. This mm-hmm. was very much outside of our comfort zone. Uh, Cornell for undergrad. Then I did 10 years uh, at Goldman Sachs in New York, a little bit in London, all foreign exchange trading floor. So last open outcry, you know, old school, super, super fun. The pre-08 era, post-08 era, very different movies, but new movies nonetheless. And then some weird twist of fate, I ended up um, coming back. I got a phone call from a friend of mine who I'd made while I was at Goldman, who was well-known here in Houston. Uh, and her husband ran for president of the United States. And so before he made his announcement when he was building his team, I was one of the first phone calls. So like a crazy person, I quit my very lucrative, you know, VP at Goldman Sachs job right. to move uh, back to Houston and, and do that campaign, which is really the ultimate startup. Yes. Uh, we had, you know, I would dress in all black sometimes. We couldn't afford a photographer and, and do all that kind of stuff. But I ultimately was a finance director. Um, and so that changed who was in my cell phone literally overnight. Um, worked at a boutique investment firm called Kaz Investments, and uh, still a principal there, which just you know means I meet with Christopher Zook, the the chairman, regularly. And we took it from a small 250 million AUM multifamily office to two and a half billion in in two years, same number of people. Wow! So who knocks on your door when you want to get a B next to your name in AUM changed overnight. Mm. So all of these you know what I call soft hands uh, from the Northeast that were in their fancy suits would come down to Texas and tell us why they were so great at investing and why they were, you know, so good at running companies. I was like, oh, well, what kind of companies have you been running? They're like, oh, well, we run our private equity business. I'm like, well, it's not quite the same. So I thought it was disingenuous for me to say I was a great investor having never actually run a portco. Mm-hmm. So called Paul Hobby and said, what of your portcos do you have that I can go get some operational experience? And he says, well, I don't have anything right now, but Brett Biggert called me this morning. I'm like, who's Brett Biggert? He's like, oh, he runs Freedom Solar. I'm like, I don't know anything about solar. Um, he says, you should meet. So I went and ran um, a big part of Texas' oldest and largest solar business called Freedom Solar for the better part of two years. And then through divine intervention or randomness, um, 
as Palantir was going public in the fall of 2020, I got a phone call, um, which is a longer story for another podcast yeah. maybe, uh, to help come build their commercial business. Okay. So that's my story. We were lots of hats. Wow. And Palantir is a Peter Thiel start back to company, correct? Yep. He's one, okay. He's one of the two. One, okay, one, one of the four, four founders. Four founders. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, I mean. That's a big name. Yeah, that's a, a good lead into, I jokingly said, we're going to break, you know, what does Palantir do? Because the, the, everybody that I told I was doing this podcast with the folks from Palantir, they're like, what do they do again? Tell me. Well, if you look at their website, again. it's even tricky. It's, it's tricky to understand. I mean, you can go a bunch of different ways on the website trying to understand exactly what they do. Yep. Um, I mean, I don't mean to cut you there, but like, I would, can you explain that? <laughs> like the different, the, I mean, there's a, a bunch of different tabs, obviously different products and services. I mean, help me, help me maybe understand could, what they do. Yeah, on I this. think maybe telling the story of how Palantir even got started might yeah. be most helpful. Yeah. I think if you look at the... Well, well, we'll think of the masters, right? If you if you're looking at that, oh, this is outstanding. The oak tree right by the clubhouse, right? If you look at one branch, it's very hard to tell like what that is. If you look from the trunk up, the whole thing makes a lot more sense. Okay, I think, um, right? So if we go back to the where the roots, I guess, really like, and then we'll get to the trunk and then the leaves. Um, yeah. So companies founded in 2003, um, and the founding team largely draws its roots back to PayPal, right? And specifically the anti-fraud division of PayPal. So. Early 2000s, everyone's trying to get into online payments. And everyone is giving away money to get people on their platform, right? Because the more people you get on their platform, the more transactions you can actually Eyeballs, do. yeah. Yep. So everyone's giving away money, and everyone's losing money at the same time to mostly the Russian mafia. Um, losing money meaning fraud, stolen. Fraudulent transactions, yeah. yeah. Fraudulent accounts, fraudulent transactions, scams, all of those things, right? And so... Josh's face when <laughs> you said Russians, which is a perks right Yeah. Well, this, has, this yeah. problem this, hasn't this gone away. This kind of exactly. still happens. Yeah. So, Citibank's platform... We're in danger right it. now, Josh, I mean, from the Russian mob. It just you would be amazed by how many places the Russian mob steals things from you. I recently learned that um, if you're not changing your password or have a password manager regularly on your... Um, airline, whatever you're preferred, if you fly United, Southwest, et cetera, uh, you know, the mobsters are stealing our miles frequent from our miles. frequent flyer miles because they can use them for other things. Mm -hmm. They can have, you know, Vladimir flies from Moscow to Kazakhstan and it, the airline won't realize that someone's flying a fraudulent ticket till it's two days later. But then if you are vigilant like us and you have to repay us and then you have to pay a fine, I mean, it's still happening wow. in a major way. Okay. So it's not just dollars. Anyway, go yeah. on. So Citibank's trying to solve this the way they solve credit card fraud. Right, we have they have a set of algorithms that that looks at that. Western Union, same thing with their platform. PayPal took the different take, which is you're dealing with humans with a human adversary. Every time you catch them, they're going to change the way they're doing it. Right. So what you actually need is a system that allows humans to interact with data and ask questions and then get back answers. And to to jump all ahead, like, and I'm sure we'll talk about this maybe a little bit, like the hype and the interest around like ChatGPT and large language models. I think is very interesting in terms of like. How can humans ask questions the way they think and get back intelligible responses? That's what the PayPal anti-fraud team had in their head at the very beginning. It's like, how can you query this data the way you think of what someone is trying to do? So show me accounts that are logging in in a time window from geographies that are physically impossible to be in those places in this amount of times. Show me accounts that are transacting more volume than all of the other volume in a geographic area, right? Like, and these are, these are things that you're going to ask new and different things all the time. And they were doing this with a team of, you know, GEDs in Omaha. So they build that. 
PayPal solved this problem better than anyone else. They win that space. That founding team says like, wait a minute, this system that we've built to allow humans to interact with complex data at large scale that's changing over time to ask and answer different questions, that's a software product in and of itself. And the first place we took that was national security and defense. We, th so we then the company Palantir. comes Palantir. Yeah, so that team leaves PayPal on great terms. I mean, it's part of the sort of that, that company's just throwing off founding teams sure. at that pace, right? And they say, we're gonna do this in national defense and government. And we think this is a great story. Everyone is gonna see the proof in the pudding there. Should be easy to raise money, right? It's impossible to raise money because in 2003, when you say like, we're gonna solve data in this space, people are like, is it cows on my phone? Is it a game that I can monetize? If not, I'm not interested. The only people who give us money is InQtel, the CIA's venture capital farm, mm. venture capital fund. Um, so they're like, yes, that sounds interesting, right? And then, so 2003 goes into 2004 and 2005. We have our first product that's called Gotham, which is really this idea of solving this problem in the, in the national security and defense space. How can you integrate disparate data sets, documents, phone calls, images, videos, geospatial data, what the government refers to as all source analysis, mm -hmm. and put it in a way that humans can work with, regardless of what those humans are doing. So you have certain people who are doing social network analysis or economic analysis, or case officers planning operations or joint operations with the military. How can you put that in one place, matching the permissions of all of that underlying data, right? You can share some things, but not all. Some you can share across agencies. Some you can share in the Five Eyes community. And those change based on operations or contingencies or things like that. Because again, if we go back, and this feels like a very long time ago, 20 years, you know, post 9-11, technology was actually behind policy, I would say, in America, in this space. Patriot Act allowed agencies to share data, right? Um, it just, there wasn't the technical capability of of doing this right and so that was the space that we were we were trying to get into um and and solve that problem so the the real push of the company was those people should have the best technology possible to do that job that job's really hard right um and it's only getting harder right as you get more data as you get more collection as you're responsible for more things it's getting harder you shouldn't have to trade liberties protected by the constitution for people doing that job to do it really well um, and we felt like most software in the space either was insufficient for solving that problem or eroded civil liberties in a very dangerous way. Um, the more we worked in that space, we recognized this is not a problem that's unique just to the government, right? Complex organizations that have siloed business units over lots of different sets of data, where you have experts who deal with specific parts of problems, they need to collaborate just the same way that targeters and all source analysts and operators in the field do. Uh -huh. And so that led to Foundry, which is our commercial product, which really solves that same problem of how can you take all the intelligence of an organization, raw data, derived data, analysis, models, simulations, optimizations, and put those right next to your operations. All right, so you make this like closed loop where the decisions you're making, the analysis you're doing, that becomes new data, new models that get fed in rather than just a PowerPoint deck or a dashboard or anything like that. And this has then grown into work that touches on satellites and tasking commercial satellites for imagery to monitor solar farms and how well they're working or pipeline excursions and integrity um, to work now with large language models uh, that we just announced on, on Friday uh, and to sort of like products behind the scenes that manage the upgrades of all of those systems, right? How can you manage 200 microservices on a submarine 
that doesn't have connections all the time or on a satellite where you know you're deploying just a couple lines of code um so when you go to the website like you say right. you, you see you know dozens of different things that that the software does and i think if you look at all those leaves and you're like wait what's what's the same about these this this sounds different ferrari race cars is different than bp drilling wells is different than airbus building planes is different than banks doing anti-money laundering what all of those have together is this idea of there is tremendous value in the knowledge in an organization. Mm -hmm. That knowledge comes from data and humans working with that data. The tighter you can make that loop between knowledge and action, you can run a better company, you can run a better intel agency, you can run a better country. Um, that's what I think all of our customers have in common. Okay. And so two questions come out of that. I'll ask the frivolous one first, which is if you've seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty, mm -hmm. Jessica Chastain is this she finds bin Laden, but it takes her years to do it. And w if if she was working with Palantir, would she have found them lots faster? Or, right? I mean, it, that's when you were telling the story, I'm thinking like that is data. She was sifting through huge amounts of data and having to figure it out and interviews and all this. So correct or incorrect or partially correct? I'm so uh, intrigued to see how he answers yeah, this. Yeah, I'd say. Because so sometimes... If you Google, if you Google names you just mentioned that aren't Hollywood actress actors in our company, you'll get a version of an answer to this. Okay. That I can't talk about because of what my job used to be in things. Okay. Agency. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but I think it's in the U.S. among Western allies, we're very proud of the work we've done on not just being able to deliver outcomes in that space, but deliver outcomes at greater pace yeah, where speed. time matters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, in my notes, yep. I have a, a sentence here that says, <laughs> allows organizations to integrate their data sources and models into a single point access, enabling faster data-driven decision-making. I feel like that's kind of answering which, I mean, because yeah. that was their problem. They just, they were trying to put all this stuff together. It was a great movie, by the way. Yeah. And, and make the decision because yep. she had to add up everything and then convince everybody that it was actually uh -huh. real. Okay. And so as you were describing that, Matt, the, is the seat that, so there's obviously there's how to gather all this data, pull it together. Um, it is the secret sauce, the how humans can interact with that information. So is it the interface that's unique or is it secret algorithms and et cetera that, that Palantir has that means the data gets smushed together in ways that other people can't. I'm kind of thinking about yeah, yeah. competitive well, edge. Yeah, so I think it's 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 actually neither of those. Okay. Um, but it's it's two things I'm in my mind. I'm batting like 0 for 9 no, no, so no. far in this, um, in this podcast. You know, it's okay. John, John Rom four putt the first green, right? Mm -hmm. Like, still won the tournament. Still wins. Yeah. Um, he's telling me, he's telling me I have a chance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you got 71 questions left. <laughs> right, um, right. And so... Yeah, I think one thing that's that's differentiated is we've approached this space from the the sort of ground up on saying, you know, that the problems the agency has now moving forward are going to be different than what they did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. If you think of like how we're thinking of Russia and China now and how much time the foreign policy establishment looks right. at that compared to Afghanistan and Iraq 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So if you build a system that you say like the world will change. You will care about different things in the future. You will hire new people. You will build up new capabilities. Then you have to go very like bottoms up on how could you integrate any type of data, any type of model, and build any workflow on top. And this 
sort of resilience or flexibility, that's part of it. Okay. Right? That's, I think, one thing that is very differentiated about our company. Um, so the bedrock of all this is super flexible and strong. Yeah. And you have to, like, that is a part that is really not sexy, right? And this is why we had such a problem raising money at the beginning. When you when you go in and people are like, oh, what, what's it going to look like? Is it going to look like the movies? Or is it going to look like Minority Report? And we're, we're talking about cellular level mm -hmm. access controls in a secure classified environment and the path to getting IL-6 certified, right? And people are like, their eyes glaze over. They're like, that sounds boring. It is boring, right? The, the foundation of a house is not the exciting part for anybody to see. Everyone wants to look at the finishes. If you have a crappy foundation, the finishes don't matter, right? It's a bad flip. Um, so that's one thing I think that is differentiated with our with our tech. And, and out of that comes speed, time to value, scaling, all of these other things. Uh -huh. the, the second is openness and extensibility. So there's a lot of software out there that that is, as you mentioned, sort of like proprietary black box. Like it's a perfect model for X. How does it work? I can't tell you, right? How does it interface with these other things that I have deployed? It, it doesn't, right? And if you want to work in the government space first, the government has plenty of systems of records and those are not going away, right? Like message traffic that's coming in from embassies, it's going to land in this repository and that's never going to change. So you have to build software that from the very beginning is going to be in a brownfield environment and you're going to have to be flexible with how data gets in or be flexible with reading data that you can never ingest. And then you're going to have to be extensible and open on the way on the way out. Um, and I think that is, that's relatively unique to put those two things together to say like, we're going to really focus at a granular level on that foundation. And we're not going to be a lobster trap where things have to stay in the platform. Oh. Like they can go out anywhere else. Okay. And, and Lila, so we now have this government focused business that says we want to do things outside of government. And I think your title is U.S. commercial leader, which I assume means you're you're attacking all sorts of different yeah. industries. Yep. And so, what's the pitch? How 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 do you how how do you find people that say, "Oh, great, I want to do this"? Well, we kind of even again rewinding back. There are a lot of things that worked in the government space. Let's use army readiness. Does you know, Private Dan? Is he ready to go to war if we have to? And he, you would say, yes, of course I am. Well, when was the last time you went to the dentist? Right, so some of that workflow was some of the same workflow that we had to use with uh, you know, an oil company. If, uh -huh. okay, in a downturn, we have to get rid of 75% people, of the people on this one um, oil rig. How are we going to have the same amount of output with only 25% of the people, right? And so, you know, how I, to answer your, your original question is like, how do you even have these conversations? You know, going around Houston, Texas, when people are like, well, Lala, what is it that you do? I work at Palantir. Oh, what does Palantir do? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm like, well, we get terrorists for a living. And they're like, excuse me, what? Did you say that right? I'm like, yes, sir. Well, what is it that you do? And so we're in 40 plus industries. So then when at whatever they say back, I have enough tools in my tool belt to say, oh, you're a pilot at United. Oh, you work at you know, XY oil and gas company. Oh, you're a doctor in this hospital. And then I'm able to talk to the stories okay. what that is. So even What's using- What's the story in energy? So, well, there's a lot of story. Again, depends on, so the hard part of our job, and again, we say this all the time, we are really great at making software. We are really bad about telling the story of it. Mm -hmm. um, because for certain people, it is a, um, is a very specific need that they're needing fixed. So we had an exclusivity agreement with BP that precluded us from talking to anyone in oil and gas for the better part of a decade. Um, when we were building Foundry out, 
um, Mr. Dudley and Dr. Carp, you know, they said, all right, we're going to do this together, but you can't talk to anyone else. So as you're obviously as you're going public mm-hmm. um, and and BP was in a little bit of a different business, it was still essential for us to not miss out on this massive segment. Mm-hmm. So really early on, this is public because we've, we've done press releases, but 21 days into um, the new world of being able to talk to other people, we had we had a meeting with the CIO of Kinder Morgan, and we the only reason why I know it's 21 days in, it was uh, my godson's birthday, and we were hunting down at King Ranch, and so I told him, after we finish this, then we can go, you know, hog hunting, um, and we decided on what to do. Well, to this day, Matt and I still don't remember what that was. Why? Because the grid went down three weeks later. Mm. So what ha- what happened in the front windshield changed literally overnight. So even my mom can tell you that she that you should buy low and sell high, right? You want to put nat gas in the pipes when the price is low. You want to sell it when the price is high. So they were running that whole thing in a very antiquated way. So we built a, an optimization tool. Well, what happened? This is for Kinder Morgan. Mm-hmm. Yep. What happens a few weeks later? You know, in the middle of nowhere, pipeline explodes, you know, unfortunately kills two people very seriously injures a third really really low probability event but the price is immeasurable so we start working on pipeline integrity well then what happens regulators start coming down on everyone on their scope one and two emissions so then we start working on on emissions so it's a very fluid conversation which is very different than a meeting we were in yesterday here in houston where it was with the tech team they just said we just want i want to be able to see what my production is for all of my different assets in one place. I want us to be able to see what's in Canada, what's in the US, what's in offshore, and I can't do that right now. So that's more of a where we start in the tech, tech <coughs> discussion. So, um, What do you say work on emissions? What does that mean? Uh, the tracking of them, okay, emissions tracking. tracking. on emissions, okay. And then the second thing you talk about. Oh, well, then we all have. Uh, sorry. No, that's, that's scope one and two, and that's where I think a lot of, and what's interesting, two years ago, it was like a one in ten conversation with a C-suite, and now it's in energy. Mm-hmm, in energy, yeah. now mm-hmm. I would say it's it comes I, up eight out of ten. I was going to say I can't remember the last meeting it didn't come up, but yeah. maybe eight. Out, yeah. yeah, and I think again, if you look at these things in layers of complexity, it, it depends where people are in their journey. But it sort of starts with I just want to have a better view of this, right? Like I want to not be surprised right. when someone walks outside my perimeter with a handheld camera and says, "Did you see this?" and tweets about it, right? Mm-hmm. So like, what does monitoring look like? Great. That's an easy place to start. That's a data integration problem, right? How do I move away from averages at the asset or basin level, at the basin level or the company level to assets, pieces of equipment? Well, then I want to know why, right? That's that's what. Now it's why. Why are my numbers what they are? Is that because I'm operating well? Because I, because I had safety issues? Because I needed to vent or release things? And then it becomes to like, well, what happens next? Like. What do I want to do about this? Which is where we really want to deploy our software is into the action space, right? Mm. Like, I'm going to put $100 million towards mitigation. I want the biggest bang for that that I can. Or I want to tackle the things that are most imperative. Or I want to focus my effort in this way, right? And so if you think about it, those are usually things that end up in three different spaces, right? It's like, well, my sustainability team does an annual report. And they're looking at averages and carbon intensities and, and emissions factors. And then my operations team looks at asset uptime and reliability. And then my finance and capital projects team is looking at how I'm spending money and what I'm getting on the return. Uh-huh. What you really want to look at is those three things together, right? right? Like, why am I operating this way? What can I do about it? How do they it? connect? And how do they connect? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, Matt, in that instance where it's, I'm going to spend $100 million on on mitigation, uh, how, do, how do you guys help? Do you build a model that tells them do it here or ranks things or... Is that, I mean, 
Yeah. So what we do there is, um, you know, most frequent, again, it, it depends a little on the, the company and what bus- what part of the sure, value of chain course, they're in, yeah. right? But it's great. Well, let's, you, you have a better view now of how your assets are operating and why they're operating that way, right? If you have other goals, because you do have, you know, the, the glib response is sort of like, it's, it's easy for anyone to be net zero. The hard thing is how to do that without going out of business, right? right? Without shutting um, down, yeah. Right, so you have production goals, you have revenue goals, you've promised your shareholders certain things. Based on those goals, and based on the way your asset has operated, and it's operating right now, and what you think of the underlying physical asset, right? How feasible is it for you to make these changes in line with your production and operate in that new and improved mm-hmm. state, right? Like, you know, I think of the way to think about this, we do a lot of work in in hydrocarbons, in renewables, in uh, production in, in airlines, a lot of this on sort of like, how resilient is my plan, right? So here you can, you can think of, here's a plan for how to spend that hundred million dollars. That may be great, but you're going to be right at the edge of where you're operating all of the time, right? Here's one that is slightly less great. It's maybe 85% of it, but you can probably operate in that window with a 90, with a P90 success rate. High probability of success. And, and I think again, that's where it's sort of like, if you look at so much that happens in the sort of simulation and optimization space, and it's very academic, right? That go back to the, my job at the agency. It's like, how do you get the DI, the director of intelligence and the DO closer together? So you don't have, there's guys in headquarters wearing suits who are like, you should do this. And people in the field are like, you fucking crazy. Impossible. Like yeah. that's impossible, right? Yeah. Um, in, in oil and gas, we start, one of the first things we worked on was production optimization, where you had that same problem. You have your modelers doing things. And you have your guys offshore being like, that's a great plan if it wasn't yeah. rainy and windy right. and half my crew was sick. Perfect conditions all the time. Yeah. So think of emissions in that way, right? It's like, ah, oh, here's my mitigation scenario. It's like, but how feasible is that with how you're actually operating your asset now mm-hmm. and what you're planning to do? And it's how do you put those things together yeah. and then track it, not quarterly or annually, but every day on your real production stats mm-hmm. and your emissions monitoring. So are you above or below that line? Yeah. Is I think it, that's a very rational way to... Think of, I, don't, I think people too often expect everything to be perfect all the time. It's just not. They don't really take the time to right. account for variances. Uh, yeah, yeah, life is not perfect all the time, and uh, that's how progress is made. I appreciate. Yeah, the, yeah and you're in transient the states, there. right, all the time. Yes. Right? Like, I, w- I was at a dinner last night uh, where the topic of winter storm Uri and the Texas grid came up. And I'm listening to you talk about optimization and probabilities and, and whatnot. Um, you know, if Palantir got into the Texas power system and looked at all the gr- grid, and the reliability of certain assets, et cetera, um, could you optimize that system better? I can than talk the- a lot about this. The problem there yeah. is you has for certain things. So uh, we started working with PG&E. Okay. When, in, well, Cal- in California. In California. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, more often than not, we get the phone call when something bad has happened. Sure, of right? course. We're Northern California is on fire. Yeah. We get the call from PG&E. Like COVID happens, you like everything hospitals, from PPE, yeah. vaccines, yep. hospitals. So in the PG&E example, they just needed something simple. Dan, if they were going to turn your power off, they had no way to tell you. But guess what? They already have your phone number. But why can't they tell you? So that was a logistical thing that we help them do. Yep. In the state of Texas, a law has to be passed first. So Law well, has to be passed first for what? That to, we're going to turn your power off? No, to in order to contact you, to let you know. Mm-hmm. So oh. it's an emergency management thing. So there are, uh, because of Texas, you know, er, there was a lot of finger pointing going around, right? 
Uh-huh. As as evidenced yeah. by <laughs> the massive turnover in those in those roles, so yeah. um, could we help them? Absolutely, uh, but there are some political headwinds that have to be addressed. So it's just where do you plug in? But there's a million and one ways. But that yeah. was one of the first places that the state of Texas wanted our help, um, but they had to pass a bill first. A and and, and I learned um, that bill had been put forth in front of the legislature many times prior, but it was never high enough to make mm. to make the actual voting. Yeah. You said something earlier that I want to come back to. You said early on uh, you were working with BP mm-hmm. and they had an exclusiv- exclusivity period, which I assume is now lapsed. But let's go back and t- tell us what you can tell us about BP because you worked with them for a long time. Still do. Um, and so what can you tell us about what you did with them? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we still work with them. The exclusivity went away, but we yeah. we renewed that deal for, for five more years. Um, and, and actually, a, a, I can talk about it, but the, the better version of this uh, is is Dr. Carp and Mr. Dudley's talk at Sarah Week, which mm. if anyone listening to this finds that online or has creds or was there. Some people, I'm sure, saw I, it. Actually, I can get access to that, and I'll, I'll post that now that you say it's that. It's on YouTube. Yeah, because oh, it is. Okay. It is. So we'll put that in the show notes. First of all, the Great. two of them are way more interesting than me. Um, Impossible. <laughs> well, they, they weren't on the 716th green, or 16th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't 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 let Dr. Carp know I play golf or yeah. like golf. Um, so, we'll you, like that part out. Like well, most no, He's most happy that things. we do, because that means he doesn't have to, <laughs> yeah. to be very clear. Um, you know, like most things that, that become big for us, it started with one specific problem, right? Um, and, and Bob, actually, this was the first time he talked about it publicly. Bob Dudley, there. the CEO yes. of BP yep. at the time. Um, was a, a special project post Macondo um, mm-hmm. that we worked on with him where he said, like, look, I have this really hard thing. And, and Macondo was the, uh, the, the well explosion with that deep water blew out in the, yep. in the Gulf of Mexico. Yep. Um, it was a complicated data problem. He got our name from a friend and and called us up and said i want you to work on this right and and that went well and he said okay now i have another thing right i want you to look at risk in in two ways real quick were you involved in that back then because that would have been early on in your yeah so the the way that i made the jump from our uh so this was this was after the event yes um yeah so you were at 09 i assume time frame at palantir correct yeah so i started in in interviewed in 2008 accepted the offer had to leaving that building takes a while the uh, agency transferring a clearance yes takes a so while 2010 was macondo so i'm just trying to put yeah so 2009 i started palantir this work with bp started in uh in 2013 um the way i jumped from our commercial business from our government business to our commercial business was was when we started the work with bp dr carp asked me he's like hey bob's asked me to do this thing i'd like you to come over and get started just just for six months um <sighs> So I, I told my wife, I was like, hey, I'm going to have to go to London, you know, every other week, every third week, but just for just for six months, six months. And then I'll be back and, and in D.C. all the time. And six months turned into more. Yeah, a more. lot more. <laughs> it's a good it's a good yeah. phrase. Um, so that that goes well. Then he said, OK, risk, risk in general. I know you guys do a lot on risk in the government space, right? Security risk, cyber risk. We have risk in, in three ways. Cyber. Trading. We're rogue trading. We might have traders who are doing things we, we don't know about. Um, and then physical risk, because they had also had the issue in, in Egypt, in Aminas, right, where the the asset sort of was taken over by Al-Qaeda in Maghreb, and they didn't know how many people were in the building, right? And it's really hard to run a rescue operation if you don't know how many people you're looking for and what the inside of the building looks like. And there's, there's 
public reports on this. So that that led into three individual projects on cyber risk, on trading risk, which they had none of, that they were running a great ship there. Um, and then on physical security accounting for people. How do we know where all of our 80,000 employees are and when an earthquake hits Turkey or mm -hmm. a plane goes down that left Malaysia? Do we have anyone there? Can we account for everyone, right? That worked well. It was only after doing those four things <laughs> that then they said like, okay, now we're prepared to let you touch the real part of our business, the main part of our business in production. And so the first production area we went to was the North Sea. So we went up to Aberdeen, spent time there. And the first project there was, you know, we run these well reviews. We run them once a year, twice a year. We BP did. We BP, yeah, mm -hmm. right? So once or twice a year, we get everyone together and we say like, how is this asset performing? And it takes our best engineers weeks to go find all the relevant data, to put it into a format, to get everyone in the room. And But by the time you do that, first of all, all the information you're looking at is old, mm -hmm. right? It, it was compiled two weeks ago. And none of the decisions you're making, can you can you see like, okay, well, what if? Have, is this similar to what we did before? What do we think might happen if we do this? So everyone leaves with static guidance written down. <coughs> they go back and, and they do that work. And so we tackled that problem. And the well review process went from takes a team of engineers a couple weeks once a year to it happens in two days to it happens in one day to it happens now all the time. Just all the time you have a view of how is my asset operating. That's just a screen that everyone can look at. The asset team, the regional president in the North Sea, the head of upstream in St. James, the head of upstream tech here in Houston. You're all looking at that same data and you can pick up the phone and be like, why is this asset not operating the mm -hmm. way it is? And then that really just, that then set us on everything across their business. So we, we touch, I'd say every part of their value chain other than core exploration, right? That's still a very long cycle decision-making process, but from drilling, completions, new well delivery, base management, reservoir management, production optimization. Can you imagine what a tool that would be when you've been used to your entire career? Right. You know, you a, a month at best. I don't know what the time frame, but just say it's a month that you get from the time you have the meeting to the time you get the information to a time you make a decision and you're like, okay, that's a month. And now it's done. It sounds like I don't want to put words in your mouth daily. I mean, I can have this information. It's a, it's a real time. I mean, you're just you're, real time. It's real time, right? And I That's think incredible. the other thing, and, uh, you know, Bob is a true visionary, I think. Um, you know, he and the team that was working for him was like, I'm not going to, but I'm not going to mandate anyone has to use this. Like, we've, we've, has to be good enough that people, people want to have to it. choose to mm -hmm. use this, right? Yeah. Like, it is on you to prove that this is valuable enough in terms of barrels, value, time savings, efficiency. Mm -hmm. People have to opt in. Yeah. Like, we've, we've run out the clock on, new tech that we push out where we say, you have to use this, it's right. new. And engineers, especially, you know, at the time BP had a real culture of sort of like regional autonomy. People are gonna be like, no, like you're, you're gonna come to Azerbaijan and tell me I have to do my job differently. Okay, I'll, I'll wait until you get here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was a it was a great motivating factor for us, right? It really makes you say like, is this the best software we can configure and, mm -hmm. and put into that space? And then users who choose to use it are, are really then off and running on like, yeah. well, I've always wanted to do these things. Mm -hmm. So BP made a big pivot toward renewables and lower carbon. Yep. Um, informed by, helped by. I mean, what role do you play there? Or could you play in a in a lower carbon pivot, or as folks are trying to think about energy transition? Yeah. So this this part to me is is really exciting, and again, I think it goes back to why is the website so confusing, right? Is like. They're well, it's, able it's to not, now. It's just loaded with information. That's what it is. Yeah. It's it's a website of. This is what happens when you let engineers build. It's better now, right? Um, 
Spoken they're, by a business development guy. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're using the same platform that we built for hydrocarbon optimization for long term strategic modeling of their carbon carbon goals. Mm. Um, the same platform that they were using for production optimization has a layer that looks at maintenance. So what's the marginal cost of those barrels? And now has carbon intensity. So it's carbon aware production optimization, right? Not all barrels are are equivalent from a CI framework, right? Carbon um, intensity. Yes. CI. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's that's one area, right? The, the second is uh, it's the same platform that's used by other customers in the renewable space. So we work with those solar companies. We work, we've done a lot of work with wind um, in terms of you know wake steering and optimization of, of wind farms. Mm. Um, and I think if you think of a company like BP that is then an integrated energy company now, right? being able to look at how are all of these different parts of my portfolio performing, in that same frame, then that's that's really valuable as well. And I think, you know, the other piece is we've done a lot of work both for them and for other customers on these like long-term capital projects, right? How do you, if you think of again going back to like data integration and how how do you collaborate on billion-dollar projects, right? Like what every big oil company has been very very good at for I'd say a century is major engineering projects. Mm -hmm. And you look at things like hydrogen loops or hydrogen facilities or these other sort of like transition investments, they're major, major construction, pro they're major engineering projects, right? They're very good at, at doing those. Uh, in the same way that they've used our software on traditional oil and gas efforts like that, they're able to use it on mm. new energy technologies. Sure. Lila, does the, where does net zero and energy transition, is, does Palantir have a, a view on that? Are you agnostic? Well, I would say, you know, our tagline is that we, our whole mission is to solve the world's largest problems. And so if you put, you know, fighting terrorism and being part of the energy transition are, are towards the top of the list. So, mm -hmm. so it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And for a company around data, um, does the data say we can get to net zero in a certain time period? Or, or what do you think? Great question. I don't... <laughs> for those listening... Matt and Lila are kind of looking, looking, at, looking other. at each other. <laughs> Who wants to take here. this yeah, one? Gonna do... Yeah, I, well, this is, maybe this gets edited out. And put, like, we've, <laughs> I think we're also unique compared to other software companies that we've been adamant about, like, there's certain places we're not going to operate and, and work. Um, philosophically? Philosophically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You can uh, guess, like, certain countries the, where the, we want. The two okay. largest ones of those being Russia and China. So, um, one part of your question that I think is hard is if I look at data and I look at, what certain parts of the world are doing in line with their goals. Yeah. I feel very good. Uh-huh. But that's a portion of the world that has a small amount of the population, a declining share of emissions, and a much lower rate of growth uh, of population right. and therefore of emissions. Um, there's another part that I, that I think gets much, much yeah. harder. Yeah. Right. Well, um, it, it, it is the problem, right? This is the, this is the, the yeah. issue of rich countries that can afford to make changes also want changes being made by poorer right. countries with poorer populations and and like it's the time cost for you to hardship. drive yeah, the, the electric cost. car too exactly. how about i just like some clean water yeah exactly like, what's a car right <laughs> exactly um yeah interesting okay um so back to the sort of you've done work in oil and gas you're doing things in sort of energy transition, solar, wind, et cetera. Um, 
talk to us a little bit about what's the what do you think the neatest advances that are happening in quote unquote energy transition, however you want to define it? Um, you know, kind of what cool things are you seeing that we may not necessarily see out here in the. <laughs> um, do you want to go? No, you... go ahead. I mean, um, one thing that I think is is fascinating is I think everyone. Not everyone. A lot of people, when they think about energy transition, transition thinks about hard-to-abate sectors first, which I think is natural, right? It's like those are the people who are who are talking the most about what they're doing and what their plans are. And, and what would you what would you peg as hard hard to abate? To abate. So yeah. I, uh, you know, hydrocarbons, uh, downstream production, uh, metal production and smelting, right? Uh -huh. Both both from a production capacity and then a you're, you're generating a thing that is going to be used in an emittive right. way. Right. Right. Um, what I think is interesting is how much time we're spending with customers that are in totally different spaces that mm -hmm. care about this just as much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a consumer packaged goods company that cares about packaging in a way they never did before. Mm. Right. Both in terms of what's the, what's the, you know, carbon intensity right. of this packaging? What does this mean for the full scope of my emissions? What does that mean for my ability to sell into certain markets? And I've spent a tremendous amount of time researching this new product that I'm going to develop. I think it's a perfect fit for this market. I can't sell it in the packaging that I've planned because of how that packaging is produced and made, right? Which is a problem that I think five or 10 years ago, if you think about those types of products, no one was spending you, a lot of time. You mean like a sustainable packaging? Yeah. Uh, how that's perceived? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, and I'm not talking here about like grocery plastic bags. I'm talking about like the actual like physical packaging of this thing that's that's sold. And so again, to go to go back to sort of like how the the world is changing. How is how do you as a company evaluate sort of all of these different factors of markets you want to go into because you think the upside for those markets is great, products that you build at a competitive advantage, and regulations that are going to be changing at a much faster clip than they were before in many different ways, right? And I think like the layering of these things becomes fascinating from a, from a technical challenge. And this is where I think we go back to just like granular data is really interesting. So if you look at something like the like CBOM, the cross-border um, carbon border adjustment mechanism in Europe, right? Layered on top of Brexit with the, EU, with the UK leaving the EU, if you're someone who produces goods in Eastern Europe, and sells them into the European market. How, how do you handle all of these right. things? What does um, all this mean? What does all this mean? And then how do you run your business with all of those changes? Um, I, th I think is a really fascinating space. And yeah. like, I think thematically, because I was going more thematically, and maybe you should talk about Agora. Um, there are, again, much like two years ago, no one wanted to talk about emissions tracking, and now it's part of every conversation. Like, I've had multiple meetings in the last week on um, non-energy companies building their own RNG facilities, uh -huh. right? And so, like, that's super interesting, and for the CFO to say things like, oh, it's just dollars falling from the sky, you know? Uh -huh. People are going to meet their own energy requirements, but they think that they can create so much RNG that they're going to sell it in the spot market or sell it in some uh -huh. off-take agreement. So, for Thematically, that's been, you know, in the last, I probably since Sarah week, more okay. of a, huh. more interesting. I mean, you know, we are very good at working with, uh, on problem sets that have very regular decision making points that need to be made. And so things like 
folks who are building wind facilities. Well, you're going to pick that site once. That's not, we can help, but it's probably not your highest and best use. So they're more of where are people going to be making constant decisions and how do you optimize? For It's always going to be one of three things, right? Safety, making more money, or saving money. Those are the, hmm. no matter what That's of the good. 40 industries that we're in, yeah. those, so, so those are the three things that we can help. Safety, with. how to make more money, how to save costs. Hmm. I can remember that. Yeah. Where, 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 yeah. Yeah. And, and Agora allows the right to mention that. So this is, again, this is on the web. This is on the website. This is your third. Yeah, no, I know. It's you're, an you're, easier piece to get on is, the website. It is, but it's actually, once you did the tree explanation, this is the third part of your, this, I know exactly where this is on the website. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Um, one of the other things that's interesting f for us from the software perspective is, um, you know, companies' willingness and not, not just willingness, but like mm -hmm. desire and need to share data with suppliers or customers in an in a way that they never would have done before i think and like scope three emissions mm -hmm. and impending regulations around scope three emissions are making which is the carbon associated with con consumption correct yeah yeah so think of it as your customers emissions usually mm -hmm. right um these are relationships that used to be based around either competitive advantage or price negotiation or quality delivery right if i'm making cars i care about can i get supplies from my tier one supplier or my tier two supplier at a rate that I like and a quality that is acceptable, right? Now, all of a sudden, I need to share data with them in new and different ways, and they need to share data with me because I, as a car manufacturer, have set a goal for what the carbon cost of this car is going to be, which means I need to know the carbon cost of my supplies, mm -hmm. which means I need to know a lot more about my supply chain than I ever did before. Right. And I think one of the things that COVID exposed to everyone is, you know, you you know quite a bit about your tier one suppliers, maybe some about your tier two suppliers and next to nothing about anyone else, right? And again, how do you share data in a secure way without tipping commercially sensitive data or supply data or data that's gonna be used against you in some right. way? In, or losing your airline miles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the same problems pop up in lots of different places, it sounds like. For sure. So let's shift gears. Um, we've been talking about having you guys on this podcast for six months. Six months ago, oh my gosh! I yes, and again, I pursued them relentlessly. Good job, Dan. Um, but six months ago, we probably I probably wouldn't have thought to say, "Well, let's talk about AI." But now that's all yeah. anybody wants to talk about, uh, at least if you're watching CNBC or or reading the newspaper. So. Tell us what you think about AI. I've got some <laughs> yeah. follow-ons based on what you say or what I think you might say, but tell us about AI. I mean, hero, savior, the devil? Uh, I, I think none of the above. Okay. Um, uh, there you go. 0 for 3 on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for a win, Josh. Or let me say potentially all of the above. Maybe if that, if that ah, makes you feel better. So 3 for 3. Yeah, 3 for one. 3. Um, I, I think sort of the same way that you, you can't say sort of like, there's things that I love my smartphone for. There's things I hate it for. Right. Fair. Um, yep. So I think as if you work for a technology company, you're always excited about what can be done and mm -hmm. you're optimistic about how it can be used in a good yeah. beneficial way in the future. Otherwise, like how do you have the energy to do things that have never been done before if new things don't excite you? Right. Um, but similar, you know, we, for people who are deep in their like Tolkien lore, we, where you don't have, where they don't one they usually don't call us Palantir or yeah, planetarium correct. or 
any other weird permutation of the name. But then they're like, oh, it's the seeing stones from Lord of the Rings. We're like, oh, I don't have to explain where the name comes from. And then they're usually like, but you know they can be used for evil. And we're like, well, yes, in the books, they are, they are used for both good and, and evil, right? We think our job for the company is how do you make sure you're choosing the right partners, the right use cases, and, and how it can be used in a good way. Um, and I, so I think when you ask, what do I think about AI? I think of it in the same way, right? And I think to me, what that means, and, and actually Dr. Carp published a letter on this on Friday, which is a, a better exposition of it. We can pass that to you and, and throw it in the notes mm-hmm. too, I think, which is, I think it has the opportunity to be really powerful. Like we've, we've built the platform in a way that, you know, we used to talk about intelligence augmentation. Mm-hmm. Right? How can humans use this platform? More and more our customers want to put AI and ML and sorry, automated machine language, artificial intelligence and or machine learning on top of the platform, right? I think large language models and that capability of your ability to just query, you know, a system the way you think yeah. is only increasing that, right? And we think that that's, that should be embraced, right? That's going to enable more people to do more great things with the software. The, the edit I'd put to that, which is, but there's a big distinction between doing that on data inside your company or doing that on the open internet, right? No government agency is going to want anyone putting a question they really care about right onto chat gpt trained on the open internet and that question is becoming part of that new training set similarly no one at exxon or bp or shell or chevron or any company up or down the road from here right so how do you take the best parts of that technology and the pace at which is that being developed but put it on a secure system Mm -hmm. right A, a system that that you control i think that's that's for good for good back to for good yeah yeah and then the second is how do you not make that a black box, right? What that model is actually doing. So if you think of, and again, Lila mentioned safety there, like think of highly regulated spaces. So if a hospital is using this for, where do we allocate scarce resources? Whether those are medicine, supplies, beds, right? Or insurance premium, right? Like there's a lot of literature about how if you train a model on a biased data set, not only does the model come out biased, it actually like amplifies that bias, right? So if you are a patient in a healthcare system, how do you get to see and, and validate how that, you know, if my doctor makes a decision of, I think you should go on these drugs. I get to talk to him about him or her about it. Right. If it's a model that's saying, put Matt Babin on the following three medications, how do I get to ask questions of it and know what went into that and why it's doing those things? And you're, you're sort of saying that if, if the underlying data set, if, if, the people who created it decided that the common cold was worse than right. the flu or something. I don't know that that those outcomes would then be reinforced. Or if they wanted something by, to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think this is where you know our our view is that's large language models are incredibly powerful, right? And I think that that there's going to be a tremendous amount of good that comes from people who can use those to f- more efficiently get to use their brain on the nuanced bits of really hard problems, yep. right? Um, but there's a lot of thinking that has to be done on what's the training set for that and how do you unblack box those models? Mm-hmm. We've been saying that it's going to help this generation take everybody to efficiency 1.5, right? Maybe even two because there's some, there's some good stuff to it. But the generation below us, I don't think it's going to help them at all. I think it's going to... What's the generation below us? Mean? Well, I mean, a college kid um, that's going to figure out how to cheat through a paper, not not learn, 
just write a paper without really studying. And all of a sudden you have a whole group of people that didn't really learn what they were supposed to, um, figured out how to write a paper, you know, do well, a the technology does exist. I know this from firsthand experience. Uh, uh, a friend of mine's kid goes to boarding school and mm -hmm. the boarding school roommate turned in a paper that they used this on. And uh, they, you know, we used to print out a paper, type out a paper and hand it in. Yeah. It's all done electronically. So they upload it on the see system there. and they can see in her whole paper was read. So kicked out of the school. As a AI. Correct. Okay. There's a, there's an interesting thing I saw because I go back and forth on this. I have a, I have an elementary school child, right? And so you're always thinking of like, oh, is the world going to be better or worse? Or what parts of it will be better? What parts will be worse? What 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 should I teach them that they're not learning, right? Mm -hmm. And I saw a really interesting take, which was because someone someone got a question, um, which was like, is it even worth learning these coding languages anymore, right? So I'm, this is a, from a college student who's getting a degree in computer science, and they're like. Look, if I can sketch out what I want an app right. to do, flowchart something, right, and I can just upload that, and then I get the code back. Why am I learning how to code? Should I even go into software? And and it was an interesting debate on like, well, you should because those things aren't always right, right? Like, you know, ChatGPT still gets four-digit numbers added to each other wrong about two mm -hmm. percent of the time, which I find Seriously? fascinating. Yeah, because it's I did not know well, that. it's trained on a set where people make a lot of simple math mistakes. Um, there you go. <laughs> So garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, right. Um, if you wanted to write a paper like Hemingway, great. I can. It, it has read every Hemingway book. It's read literary criticism of Hemingway. It can do that very well. There's a lot of math that's wrong on the internet, <laughs> like, and so that's we'll park that aside. But what what was interesting about the coding bit was, I think it will change the way people think of going into computer science, right? And and what you know, it makes you think of the whole problem in a different way. So if before it was like, ah, oh, well, I need to learn different coding languages to solve a problem well because people want to do different things with computers. Now I think it's going to make you think of, well, how do I make sure I'm solving the right problem, right? Because I can offload a lot of that actual the code writing work. to yeah. a system. Mm -hmm. What I can't offload to that system is like, how does this human think about using software to look at production allocation or pipeline integrity or you know, consumer demand for whatever? Um, I, think the, I think a lot of hard things are going to stay really hard. Um, I, I don't disagree with you. I, yeah, I just think that the this, the younger generation is gonna a lot of people are gonna outsource the thinking part, and yeah. I'm I'm concerned with that. I think that because th thinking is hard. Yeah, and you have to learn how to think. Yeah, and, uh, and if you don't learn how to think, then you and you're just like, well, I'll just do this. Yeah, that concerns. That's the part that concerns. No, me. that's totally fair. And yeah. I go back. I had a different professor in grad school who every test was. He's like, yeah, bring bring anything you want. Bring the textbook. Bring all your notes. <laughs> It was the hardest test I'd ever had, right? And you knew it going in. He's like, oh, well, there's, he is going to ask you things that are not in any of the books, Bring right? And require you, you to think. And so right. um, I think whether people view it as a way to stop thinking or a way to do better thinking is a very interesting litmus yeah. test on the angel or devil right. yeah. bit. And and Josh, I just want to make the point that yes. that the concerns that you raised, you're way too young to have these concerns. Those are 65, <laughs> 70 year old people that are supposed to say the younger generation's all going to go to hell. And well, you're, you're, you're just advanced. Yeah. Congrats. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about people on your lawn? Oh, get off. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> get my, I, my, uh, no, but I do. It's the, well, you know, I've, I have kids as well and I'm also around, I've got a lot of younger people that work for me. These, you know, these kids, these damn kids yes. that work for me. Yes. And Lauren, our producer, is in there going, this guy. Because I'm definitely the most immature person that works in this entire company. But I digress. 
it just it just concerns me, like I said, because I, what I don't want is I had a boss one time and he looked at me just dead faced and he said, thinking is hard. And when you really and I hope the audience understands that, like when you really have to go through a problem, it takes quiet. It takes time to go through every little channel of thought. And I don't think people appreciate how hard it is to go through that. And sometimes when you outsource that, you just get short answers with short solutions that don't solve real problems. And, you know, you talked about that you guys are solving the world's biggest problems. And I wonder if I, and I, and again, I love listening to what you're talking about. And that's why when you can solve some of these problems, I hope that it's giving us more time to solve big problems and think big to solve big problems. And that's where I hope that like a chat GPT, for instance, or the Microsoft or the Bard or whatever is from Google gives people more time to get rid of the, you know, the tactical stuff to get, then go really think strategically on a lot of this because we have really big problems to solve. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, so yeah, it's yes. all about asking the right questions. And we tell the story all the time. When we first started working in the commercial space, we're working with a train company. And mm -hmm. the train company says, okay, like we're trying to cut costs on how uh, on, on fixing the trains, right? So we do all this work and we find, out, okay, here's this one wheel. It's super expensive um, and it breaks more the, often than the other wheels. So they start changing the wheel more regularly. But we took it from a small percentage of breaking to an even smaller percentage. Mm -hmm. That was the wrong question. The right question was, okay, we have one mechanic for mm -hmm. eight hours a day. What is the best way to optimize his time? And so sometimes you have to like go through these iterations of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so even if ChatGPT tells you the wrong thing, you still, the human being is gonna go and do that, uh, as my mother says all the time, once Mr. Experience gets through with you, you'll never need another teacher, mm. right? So. Um, well, that's, you know, back to the whole point about BP with the, you know, giving you that information so quickly. To me, that's, that is energy transition and energy in transition, right? If you're giving, companies the ability to be more productive there's definitely money being saved there's time being saved if you can fail quickly and fail fast fail fast yeah. right if you can do that there you're going to there's efficiencies being made even if it is oil and gas and nobody you know there's energy comes from oil and gas maybe primarily mm -hmm. the world's energy comes from oil and gas and but there's those efficiencies people just don't see that are being made all across the world right now from decisions just like that from a month's decision to hour by hour. And I just hope that, you know, that's what this podcast is designed for, to for people to understand like this is these are types of energy and transition ideas that are coming all over the place all day long from places that nobody thinks they're coming from. Yeah. I love it. I think it's cool. How long is it gonna be before we have chat GPT internal to your own company? It's learned on your own systems and what like is that like tomorrow? Is it coming quickly? No. We're doing this yeah, now. Yeah, now. Now. So with all those systems, basically people, BP can do a chat GPT, show me the best six wells in the company, and pop, bam. Yep. And you got to wow. remember, like, you're cool. talking about you know, in technology, you shouldn't be in it if it does, the new technology doesn't excite you. Yeah. You know, we're, by 80, we're a company of engineers run by engineers. We're 80% engineers. People are stoked to work on this stuff. Yeah, I bet. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really cool. cool stuff. That's very cool. Any other... Palantir stories that we should talk about before we go to our lightning round. There's there's one other thing that I think is is pretty cool and and um, well there's a lot of other things but <laughs> I'll I'll pick one right. Um, you were, we're more public now about a lot of work we've done in Ukraine um, and mm. you know Dr. Karp was the first CEO to go over there to to meet with the president. Um, you know like like we said we're sort of an opinionated company about we think this is the right thing to do so we're going to do it and we'll deal with the consequences of that. Um, and, and that was, was one thing. Um, and we built 
a really cool piece of hardware. I wanted to bring one today, but um, I couldn't get here. <coughs> and it would it got have, caught in customs. Yeah, it, it gets it gets scrutiny in customs, um, which is a thing we call SkyKit. So if you think of a Ooh. seventy quart Yeti cooler, um, but but make it even more ruggedized, uh, and then inside of it, it has everything you need to run a disconnected mobile command post, right? Um, so it's got. I can imagine that a satellite has a problem getting uh, through customs. Uplink terminal, right? They're like, "What are you using this for?" Uh, we don't know yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a battery pack, so it could run for about a week. It's got trail cams that have sensors on them, and it's got a drone, um, and then it's got two computer screens in the lid, and then a you know ruggedized laptop that you open up. So it. I can tell you right now, I want one of those. Ah, this things. sounds amazing. I don't know what I'd do with yes. it. Well, we well, you out. actually, this is part of the energy transition <laughs> conversation. Yeah. So. Uh, Sounds awesome. So what it's designed for is, so we did a project uh, where we, we built a mobile command center in a, in a truck, which basically was a tasking from the Army, which was the semi doesn't change. The, the engine, the, the driver, the bed. Build whatever you want on the back. And we we're like, oh, we'll build a whole command center. Right? That was, that was what we did. You're not going to use that a lot in Ukraine in the winter. right? So instead it was like people need to be able to carry it. right? So we built it. In this lower form factor, there's even a lower one that that you can wear as a backpack. Oh my God! Um, Listen, and we have this a new is mobile podcast studios. What this is in the field all the time, right? And so what's what's so cool about this is it can connect from anywhere. Uh, it connects to you know a brain system, right? So it's connecting to the headquarters system through that terminal, right? Then on those sensors, on that drone, on those cameras, you're running AI models to detect certain things. Because you don't want to drain the battery more than you have to. You don't want to take up more bandwidth than you have to. So if you're looking for a certain thing, that's what you put, you deploy through software to those sensors. Let's say that thing is a Russian tank. Right. Or a hog in <laughs> Texas. So yes. we, yeah, we'll, we'll have you up for that. So what, what's so exciting about, you know, our business is two businesses, right? There's the, there's the government part, there's the commercial part. But the, the sort of like iterative R&D between those two parts is going all the time. So instead of having two people carry that thing in Ukraine or jump out of a plane with it on your backpack, you can throw it in the back of an F-350 and you can drive it out to a well pad, right? And so you're looking at your view of production, your view of emissions, right? Your view of where you think you might have leaks or some other issue going on. You launch that drone, you fly it over your pipeline or your assets, Right. And then you can, in real time, reroute maintenance crews that you're doing or activity or validate like that's a false positive. That's from my neighbor. Like, yep, the breeze is blowing that right over my asset, but I can see my asset right now. I can see theirs. I'm pointing a camera at this. I can look at all my production data, my sensor data. Right. And it fits in a truck. And so this idea of, again, those are two totally different problems. Looking for Russian tanks is different than monitoring battery theft on lower 48 well pads. Yep. Same tech in both places. So this is for both of you. What's it like being smart? <laughs> is it cool? It wasn't cool in high school. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Carp talks about that a lot. Yeah. yeah. I, it sounds really cool now. I'll tell you what's cool is to work with smart people. Yeah. Like that, I, I get the question a lot, like, why are you still there? Like, aren't you getting bored? And first of all, I think we're solving new problems all the time. But most meetings I'm in at Palantir, I'm, I feel like the dumbest person oh, in the room, um, which is a, a feeling <laughs> I am intimately familiar with. Which you, the amount of time you spend in life working, 
you better really like and learn from the people you're working with all the time. And that is an awesome feeling. Well, and they also always say, like, when you find yourself the smartest person in the room, get a new room. So I'm going to be in this room for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It sounds like there's some really sharp, sharp people. Legit there. geniuses. Yeah. That's and cool. I think, too, like people who work at Palantir have a different motivation. So we have a woman who runs all of our work with Apache. And um, when I Apache, first. Apache, uh, the energy yep, company. Yep, the energy yep. company here in Houston. And um, she lives in London. And when I first met, you know, when she first got assigned to this, I just put time on her calendar. This is, you know, during COVID. And just to get to know you. And, you know, I obviously know how to read. I'm that smart. Uh, so I knew her bio. And, you know, I, I had preconceived notions. Like she went to Berkeley. She worked at microgrids. And so she's this very posh British accent. And having spent time in London, I was like, oh, gosh. Here, I, I, know, I know this girl's whole story. Mm-hmm. And so she's telling me after Berkeley, I moved to the south of France. I'm like, oh, life's so hard. Like, <laughs> tell me about the south of France. She's like, well, actually, do you remember the terrorist attack in Nice? I was like, oh, yeah, the truck. Mm-hmm. And she says, um, yeah, that killed my boyfriend and very <sighs> seriously injured my roommate at the time. And I decided um, I went down all these rabbit holes and I realized, you know, that Palantir could have helped in this scenario. And I decided I didn't want to do microgrids anymore. And I wanted to go find terrorists. And I was like why are you working with me? Why aren't you going to get terrorists? She says, well, I, I have a French passport uh, and a Dutch passport and a British passport and I can't get high enough security clearance. Hmm. So wow. that's the passion that she's like, so I, it's important for her to work at a company that has this core set of values. And I think that that matters you know, for me personally as well. And I, I'll, I'll speak for Matt, I think so too. That's great. That's awesome. Wow. Okay, we learned a lot about these two. I we love learned it. a lot about Palantir. I feel like we've decoded Palantir. I got kind of get it now. I do. That was a great explanation of the website. And I truly, what what is the website? It is uh, just palantir.com. Palantir.com. Okay, we've got that part down. Yeah, and really, and if, you, if you look at the website, and I hope everybody does, and then listen to the podcast, I think you'll be able to deconstruct what it all means. And so, great explanation. Yeah. So now's the awesome. really tough part. Yes. So shall we? Shall we go to the lightning round? Josh? Have you listened to our podcast before? Uh, correct answer is yes. Of course it is. Of course. This yes. is the best podcast really in the world probably. So Did you tell Wesley that? <clears throat> we tell everybody this. <laughs> so it's true. It's science. No big deal. Okay. But the rules of the lightning round as we wrap up here are short answers. One word. Mm-hmm. No no explanation. We'll, we get to, to know you through the answers alone. And there are wrong, there are wrong answers, by the yeah. way. And, and I'm warning you, Josh, that I... I've inserted a new one as I Ooh. thought about uh, Lila's background. So I'll okay. ask. I have not I'll, read this, so this is okay. I'll insert it in a little bit. And so you'll. Oh, you have a new one. I have a new one. Okay. Is it like a? Is it like a polygraph? You only like the, no yes questions or no. from the audience. Yes or no only, sir. There's no question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. It's yes or no or one word short okay. answers only. You ready? I'll start. Okay. Go. Pizza or pasta? And you both have to answer pasta. each. Pasta. Okay. Survivor. Or Real Housewives? Survivor. Survivor. Teaching or doing? Doing. Doing. Spoken from a teacher or a yeah. teacher. <laughs> um, the insert question, Kroner or Rand? Ooh, Rand? I'll say Kroner. So yeah, we okay, have one answer that's different yes, so far. there you go. Okay. Uh, will the government regulate AI in the next two years? No. No. Will the government ever regulate AI? Mm, No. (laughs) I don't know how they could. You next. Uh, Cash or crypto? Cash. Cash Cash for both. 
Are you bullish or bearish on the S&P 500 for the rest of 2023? Mm, I'll go bullish. It's just my family would be shocked. Bearish. Okay. This is a fun one. Four-wheel drive or two-wheel drive? Four. Quattro. Okay. Fishing or pickleball? Fishing. Pickleball. Uh, Taylor Swift or James Taylor? Neither. <laughs> That's a fair Ooh. answer. Uh, uh, yeah, same question mark. <laughs> James Taylor, kind of I a mean, legend. Yeah. Uh, does the Ukraine conflict continue into 2024? Yes. Oh, 2024. Yeah. Well, I already we said yes. So. This year. Yeah. Uh, beyond. Okay. Oof. I don't like that from him. I feel mm. like he knows yeah. some stuff. <laughs> the agency. Um, <laughs> puppies or kittens? Puppies. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Work from office or work from home? Office. Office. Another IRA type bill in the next three years? Uh, no. Then I think I'd finish this one. Uh, Miami or San Diego? To live? You're not allowed to ask oh, questions. Yeah. yeah. No follow-ups. San Diego. How, how did you pick that one? Uh, I'm a renaissance man. Okay. I just think it's... <laughs> you didn't, you... But yeah, I say Miami because okay. it's closer to fishing. Okay. Okay. And then I'll, I'll ask yes. the last one because this is my this is the only question that's consistent for every podcast we've ever done. Which is, will the Houston Texans win a Super Bowl in the next decade? No. No. But I'm a Broncos fan, so I can't point fingers at anybody. There we go. Well, um, you, were, you guys were very kind to come in and, and us. educate us. So, Matt Babin, Lila Ontiveros of Palantir, thank you very much. The website is www.palantir.com. And we'll have you back some other time to talk more about all of this stuff. He's got good stories. Awesome. Yes, yes. Great stuff. thank Both you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers.